Good afternoon, and thank you for joining Beyond the Benefits podcast. This is Colleen Patterson, and I'm the Vice President of Employer Services and Compliance at Savoy. And joining me today is also Chris. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself? Hey, Colleen. Chris Vanderwolk here, Senior Vice President of Employer Services and Compliance at Savoy. Uh, Excited to talk about some fun government forms this afternoon. Yes, you're right. So as we are having today's uh, discussion, it's the beginning of June and we were just talking about how the air quality isn't so great. So hopefully everybody can hear all of us well and we're sounding okay uh, for today's uh, podcast. Um, Even though it is June and there isn't a ton that's been happening legislatively, there are still some obligations that employers and certainly brokers need to uh, pay attention to as we are coming into the summer. This tends to be a time, I think, Chris, when people kind of slow down a little bit in our business and kind of take things easy, maybe grab some vacation, hopefully, before fourth quarter uh, hits. But there is some important things that we want to make sure that we make uh, brokers aware of. And we're talking about Pecori fees today and what the impact is or is not on Form 5500s. Um, so with that, Chris, let's go ahead and just dive in. So how about you start us off with explaining what PCORI fees actually are and what's the impact really to businesses and obviously their health care plans? Absolutely. So PCORI fees came about as part of the Affordable Care Act. PCORI stands for Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And this is one of those things that Really, everybody on both sides of the aisle thought would be a great thing in the ACA, and it it turns out it has been, but it does come with this filing and this fee. But what PCORI does, what the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute does, is they fund research that evaluates comparative health outcomes, clinical effectiveness, risks and benefits of medical treatments and services. So if you were to Google uh, PCORI accomplishments, you'll find year by year, they list all the different studies that they fund, everything that they give grants to, And they really have moved the needle on things like hemodialysis and comparative effectiveness of different treatments. And this is a big picture way to bend the cost curve down to provide better value to people. Uh, And the way this is accomplished, the way that the PCORI Institute gets this money is by health plans paying for it. So issuers of specified health insurance policies and plan sponsors of applicable self-insured health plans have to pay a fee to fund this research. I think that's a great point that um, this information is actually public information. It's available for people to see because I know one of the questions that we have historically received is, how can I have to pay this fee? What does it even go to? And how do I even know that it's uh, being uh, spent wisely? So that's really good information too to make everybody aware of. But can you talk? I can't say that we know that it'll be spent wisely, but you can see how it's spent. Which I guess is uh, half the battle. We want to make sure our dollars are being used, uh, are being used. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, one of the other things as you're talking, can you kind of walk us through the process then? How does a company actually determine what the PCORI fee is that they owe? What do they have to do? So this is the question of the month. Early June, this is the question going out to every TPA of a self-funded plan or an mm-hmm. HRA. So the amount of a PCORI fee a company owes is based on the average number of lives covered under the, under the plan when the plan ended. And that is bifurcated. So this is not the easiest thing to keep straight. Uh, there are two different plans or two different fees, I should say, based on when the plan year ended. So for plans that ended between October 1st, 2022, and September 30th, 2023, the fee is $3 per person. So that's gonna be your plans that have an effective date of October 1st of 2022 through through December 31st 
of 2022. That's who's filing right now. For plans that ended last year before October 1st, they're going to be $2.79 per person. And so this includes employees, dependents, and their retirees. Companies, when they have to figure out their count, have a number of different options to figure out who's actually counted. There's the actual count method, the Form 5500 method, and the snapshot method. The actual count method is adding up the total number of individuals covered for each day of the plan year and dividing that total by the number of days in the plan year. That is administratively difficult, and most employers, I think, would have a challenge going through and figuring out the actual count. I personally haven't seen a whole lot of actual count. Colleen, have you? No, I haven't either. And and um, it, when most folks are asking what's the best or how do you calculate, we give them what the three are, and we, which I know you're going to go through, Chris. Uh, but you're right. I have. I don't think I've ever since Pecori has been out seen anybody use this method. No, it sounds like a, a big burden, and a, sure, sure, it's going to be accurate, but probably going to be quite a challenge to do. So yeah. the the next method, which also I haven't seen frequently at all, is the 5500 method. And under the 5500 method, a plan sponsor determines the average number of individuals covered under a plan year based on the number of participants reported on the plan's Form 5500 filed for the plan year. And a plan can use this method, the Form 5500 method, if its Form 5500 is filed no later than the due date of the PCORI fees for that plan year. And we're going to get to 5500s in a little bit, but this is a useful mechanism for some plans. And the, the reason for this is if your plan grows throughout the year, the number of individuals covered under your plan is reported based on the first day of the plan year. Uh, so it could help there, but a lot of employers are scrambling to get their 5500s in, they're asking for extensions, and they may not qualify for this. So likewise, I haven't seen many employers using this method. Colleen, how about you? I haven't seen many that actually follow through with using it. And what I mean by that, and you were just alluding to it, um, it it's helpful if you grew throughout the year and you took it the day, the first day of the plan year. But also what I've seen employers do is the opposite. Unfortunately, if they've had the downsize, then if they originally were looking at that method and now they see that they have multiple ways that they can actually calculate, they're going to almost always use the next one that I know you're about to talk about. So even though I've seen people talk about using for the 4500 method, I don't know anybody that's actually filed based on that. Yeah, and that echoes my experience. So the one that we do see, the the predominant method, and I think almost exclusively for the groups that I've worked with over the years, is the snapshot method. And this mm -hmm. method is more administratively simple than actual count. It captures the group size more accurately, uh, but it's also not a huge burden. So the snapshot method, the employer adds up the totals of individuals covered on one or more dates in the first, second, or third month of each quarter of the plan year or more dates in each quarter if an equal number of dates is used in each quarter. So the big thing here is consistency. You've got to use a, the same measurement similarly throughout the year. You've got to divide that total by the number of dates on which a count is made. So um, there's a number of caveats here and a podcast is not the appropriate way to teach somebody how to do this in depth, uh, but the caveats are, are numerous and to give people that might be listening a bit of an overview, some of them are that all the dates used in the second and third and fourth quarters must be within three days of the date in that quarter that corresponds to the date used in the first quarter. So if you use the 15th of each month in the first quarter, you've got to use a date within three days of the 15th in the following quarters. Um, it's got to be within three days of those corresponding dates, and all of the dates must fall within the same plan year. So if you use the 30th of each month, then 
you can't roll into the following January by saying, well, it's only three days later. You've got to use a shorter date. If you use the 31st, um, you might have an issue uh, getting to that. So I think that's, if I uh, stop you right there, Chris, because I think um, one of the things that comes up all the time is, well, how do, how do they even determine that? And this kind of follows along with the ACA when, you know, you're taking a look at, um, if you're look, using the month to month, you're going to be doing that on the same time frame each month. And it's the same um, concept, uh, concept here, which is, if, just like you said, you got a three-day window. So they're using the same methodology that you would be doing on the ACA side. And as you said, this is coming from the Affordable Care Act anyway. So there's consistency there in these different fees and the way that you are determining group size, um, who uh, is eligible, you're determining your PCORI fee responsibility. So there's a consistency there that I think is a common theme. Would you agree? Absolutely. And this is one of those places where the consistency helps us instead of confusing us because yes. uh, there are so many similar terms that have different definitions. And I'm thinking to cafeteria plans where you've got highly compensated individuals and highly compensated employees, and those are different definitions for a different episode. We're not going to spin everybody around in circles on that today. Uh, so yeah, it's, it is very consistent. It came out of the same body of law. Um, and so really, the employer has to go through and establish a process, or really, in, in my experience, it's the TPA. The TPA is sending out an email right about now. Uh, check your inboxes if you haven't gotten them, or look for look out for them if you expect them to come in, saying, here is your count. We base this on the snapshot method, because that's the easiest way for TPAs to measure membership, too. They're, they're going to go off the bill date, most likely, because that's how they issue the bills. That's how they count it. They're not going to look at a different day. So. Uh, that's the snapshot method in a nutshell. So we've talked a lot here about how to calculate fees. And just to recap, you talked about uh, there's really three ways to do that. And of the three, they were the actual count method, the form 5500 method, and the snapshot method. And our experience has been snapshot method is what most um, employers use. So can you walk us through an example, like a real life, what somebody could expect uh, as they go through this? Absolutely. So we're going to talk about an employer group on a calendar year basis with a self-funded health insurance plan. They want to use the snapshot method to determine the average number of individuals covered under their plan. And they're going to um, determine the number based on the first of each month in of each month of each calendar quarter of the plan year. So for this group, let's say that on January 4th, they have 200 employees enrolled in the plan. On April 5th, they have 210 individuals on the plan. On July 5th, they have 205, and October 4th, they have 205. So what do we have there? We have days that are consistently with the first part of the quarter, and they're within three days of each other for that period. So we have the fourth and the fifth, and we have employee counts of 200, 210, 205, and 205. And for those that are driving, uh, I'll do the math for you. That is an average of 205 employees. So. Uh, this plan would end on December 31st, 2022, with a total of 205 average employees. So they're going to figure out their applicable amount, which in this case is $3 because the plan ended December 31st, 2022. And they're going to multiply that by 205. So they're going to pay $615 on their Form 720, which is the excise tax form used to pay. So that's a snapshot. They picked a date, the first part of each month of each quarter. They were within three days of each one. They added up the number of employees that were enrolled in the plan 
on each of those dates and divided it by the four measurements that they did. And they multiplied that by the applicable fee, which in this case was $3. Excellent. Thank you. So you were talking about doing math and I'm sure that that scared a whole lot of people. <laughs> so we're talking about that because we're in insurance. We're not necessarily the actuarial side of insurance. Um, but what are some common mistakes or some misunderstandings that you've seen that businesses have made when it comes to PCORI fees? So thankfully, this is not uh, calculus. Uh, it's really just some algebra. Um, but there are a bunch of misunderstandings that go along with PCORI fees. And probably the biggest is not knowing that the fee applies to certain types of plans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, so all health plans have to pay PCORI fees. For fully insured plans, the insurers are paying for it. So whether an employer knows it or not, on their fully insured plans, the insurers are remitting this. But on a self-funded plan or a health reimbursement arrangement, the employer is the plan sponsor, is the health plan themselves, and has to remit this fee. So if you have a standalone HRA, uh, or if you have a self-funded plan with an integrated HRA, you have to pay this PCORI fee, or a self-funded plan without an HRA, I should say, too. I don't want to make it sound like you only have to pay this with an HRA. So if you have an HRA or a self-funded plan, as an employer, you have to pay this. Um, the next big misunderstanding is how to calculate the average number of lives. And I think we went through that, and we're we're always going to be available for people if they have questions on that. The TPAs are generally going to be a great resource for this because they're going to calculate it and tell the employers how many people they had on the plan. And then this is also one of those things where it's, I didn't know I had that obligation or I didn't know it was due because it's not on the national news every night. I don't think leading up to July, we're going to see nightly news stories on NBC and CBS and ABC. Walter Cronkite's not saying, make sure you pay your PCORI fee. So <laughs> it's really incumbent upon uh, benefits advisors to make sure that people know this because it could slip under the radar. So and if companies miss the payment, they miss the payment and it's just a late tax payment. We can get to that in a minute. That's a great point that um, that's probably as the question that we get as equally as what is PCORI fee is, what do I do if I've missed the PCORI fee or I didn't realize I had to uh, submit this fee at this particular time. So, and there are rules around that. And um, this has been around for quite some time now, so it's not new. Uh, so that information is definitely available and it's a, you can find that on our website as well. Um, I can actually speak to that now for, yeah, for PCORI. This is, so PCORI is an excise tax and it's filed on a form 720. And for anybody who hadn't seen it, uh, the first time you open that form up, it's really fun and, and I'm just a nerd. So maybe it's only fun to me, but, <laughs> You'll see things like fishing equipment on there. It's it's an excise tax form, so it's sort of a catch-all for the government to collect revenue on things. This is not a huge penalty. This is not. We're going to talk about 5500s. Those are huge penalties. The penalty for PCORI is five percent of the excise tax due for each month or part of a month that the return is late, with a cap of 25 percent of the unpaid tax. It's a minimum of a hundred dollars, um, but if it's after so it's, if it's after 60 days it's a minimum of $100 but it's still capped at 25%. So $100 or 25% is what you're looking at. And these are not huge dollars. So if somebody is late we are not giving legal advice, we are not establishing an attorney client relationship, I would suggest they reach out to their accountant or their attorney and get this thing cleared up because it's really not a huge penalty for employers. It's not a heavy lift to get it done either. It's no. it's one of the easier items to comply. It's definitely low-hanging fruit to get your ducks in a row and have it done correctly uh, and quickly. It, it doesn't take long. 
Um, so we talked a little bit at the top of uh, today's podcast about Macquarie obviously being one of our topics today, but whether or not there's an impact on a Form 5500. So can you talk about how does the Form 5500 tie into Macquarie fees and explain what the connection is for our listeners? Absolutely. So other than a shared deadline and the fact that employers can use the 5500 as a counting method for their self-funded plan, the 5500 and the Pecori fee are unrelated obligations that employers who sponsor health plans have to satisfy. So Pecori fees we talked about, that's research, that's a small fee to fund, uh, hopefully bending the cost curve down. The Form 5500 is a separate form developed by the Department of Labor, the Internal Revenue Service, and the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that's used by employers to report information about their employee benefit plans. So earlier, we talked about how it was great that the information was public for what PCORI was doing and mm-hmm. how it didn't guarantee that it would be spent prudently, but <laughs> the fact that it was public led to encourage that. That's the same thing for ERISA. The Form 5500, the idea is to identify potentially uh, invalid transactions or a conflict of interest where maybe a plan sponsor is using a sibling or a spouse as an agent and paying them about a bunch of money out. So employers are required to report information about their employee benefit plans like employee counts, assets in the plan, insurance contracts and the commissions and premiums they pay, uh, service providers they use. Uh, and and really, so they're, they're separate, in, separate and independent obligations that an employer has to abide by. So since we're talking about employers and uh, who actually has to file, with PCORI, you were talking about the fully insured world is how is um, um, it's largely the carriers that are handling that fully insured. It's a responsibility of the employer. So what size groups or which groups have to file for 5500? So by statute, ERISA says that all groups have to file a 5500, but there's a huge exception for small unfunded plans. So the statute itself is is pretty draconian. It says you have to file it. Uh, Department of Labor has issued guidance that says if you are a small unfunded plan, you don't have to file a 5500. And small means under 100 participants on the first day of the plan year. And for participants, we count employees and continuance, but not dependents. So if you have 97 employees, nobody on COBRA or continuation coverage, but those 97 employees have six dependents each, you still be a small plan because you have 97. And 97 even though we are insurance folks and, and not mathematicians, 97 is fewer than 100. So uh, we'll, we'll stick with that. And then unfunded means that the plan is either fully insured or it's self-funded and paid from the employer's general assets. So that means that there isn't a trust or a fund established with, with real dollars in it to pay benefits. So a lot of times in, in my prior life as a TPA, people would wanna set up a fund and limit their expenses to that. And we would often counsel them not to do that because they would be running into a funded benefit plan. If you're not small or you're not unfunded, meaning if you are either large or you have a fund, you must file a 5,500 for that plan year. So that means large fully insured group or small funded groups, even though those are rare. So we know that there's a lot of data that would be required for completing a 5500. So what kind of information should businesses be preparing or do they have to be collecting in order to complete a form 5500, certainly effectively, but efficiently? So the the big three are they need 
employers, companies that want to complete a 5500 need to track the number of participants, their plan characteristics, and the financial information about their plan. A lot of this is uh, relied upon by way of insurance carriers. So most of the business is going to be smaller plans that are fully insured. We're looking for Schedule A information from their insurance carriers where we're hoping to get a complete recitation of the facts. We don't always, um, but we're looking for the number of participants in the plan. We're looking for the amount of um, premiums paid and the amount of commissions paid and to whom. And in my experience going through the information carriers provide, what's most frequently missing is the number of participants. There will often be a reference to uh, go view the bills or as billed or some other reference to the bills throughout the year. So the employer should save those bills so that they can go look because the form 5500 the the actual cover sheet the first part of this form asks for the people on the first day of the plan year but the schedule a's ask for the number of people covered under the plan on the last day of the plan year and so those are different numbers in many cases and so that's that, that's the hardest part i think for most employers to to grab onto since you're talking about schedule a's and the carriers and uh you had just mentioned a few moments ago how you determine the 100 participant count and that it's employees and continuance, not their dependents. And one of the things that we historically see when we're preparing for 5500s here at Savoy is that a lot of times the Schedule A includes the employee count as well as the dependent count. Uh, so you really have to check those and go back to the carrier and ask them to remove those dependents because a lot of times, um, and this happens more on the ancillary lines than it does on the medical, but on the ancillary side, you're getting that number lumped together. And if you know your group is right around 100 um, employees or 100 employee participants, but you're seeing a number that says 250, that should be a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, There's a lot of misinformation or even even people that have tried, the definitions aren't super clear for a lot of the requirements for the 5500 day. We could use for some better instructions. I, then the other side of that is I think maybe the industry doesn't want much better instructions because that might be followed by more enforcement. So. Uh, yeah, and I actually, as you were talking, I was just thinking about that when, and you're mentioning enforcement, um, but something else that comes to mind as you're talking, you were saying that, you know, ERISA says everyone has to file. However, there's this huge, um, exception, which is uh, the 100 participants. But isn't there legislation out there that's still pending that's going to take that away? And we've heard a lot about this on and off throughout the years. Do you want to spend a minute and kind of just give us a little update on that? Absolutely. I think it's probably not going anywhere right now. Uh, I think most of Congress is probably not focused on this. Uh, but there has been several times an effort to revamp the 5500 in a way that would drastically alter the way that benefits are offered and reported on. Uh, the most recent proposal was actually to move it to all plans and have much more in-depth reporting. And that was pushed it off and indefinitely delayed, but it would have required employers to report on any size group. It would have required them to report benefit type information with really detail, not just health insurance. Right now it says 4A on the plan characteristic code that says health, but that could be an HRA that could be a health insurance plan. Uh, it could be an HMO, an indemnity. It could be reference-based pricing. That 4A could mean anything. Uh, and the DOL was looking for people to report whether it was an EPO or a PPO or a POS or an HMO. 
what kind of coverage it offered, which metallic tier. They were looking for a large amount of data because there's an interest in understanding what the benefits world looks like on a national scale. We hear every time there's a budget talk, it, we hear about the employer exclusion and taking that back and clawing back what the Congressional Budget Office says is worth $600 billion a year in revenue. And so there's an interest in finding out what that would mean. And the way to do that is to get employer benefit plans to report data that most of us, when we go for benchmarking, have to go find private sources. We don't have a good public repository of what small benefits are. So we we intuitively know because we work in them every day, but there is a push. Right now, I believe it's stalled. I don't think it's going anywhere, but a, a shift in perspective or a shift in priority, a shift in party dominance could absolutely bring it back to the front. We are seeing increased burdens uh, routinely. We got gag clauses that we have to report on now. We have RXDC we have to report on now. It would not be out of the uh, ordinary or outside of the realm of possibilities that this could happen. This is one of the things too that when we, because um, this has been floating out there for a number of years, when we've gone to the DOL and just asking for a status, this is one of the things that they said to even stop asking about because if you continue to ask, then you're going to prompt us to have to do something. But uh, your 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 point is taken in that it's indefinitely delayed, and there's reasons as to why that's a good thing and reasons as to why that could be a bad thing. And the benchmarking you bring up is a really valid point. Um, so we're talking about summertime, so that means there's a lot that's happening around the PCORI fees and 5500s as it relates to deadlines. So can you give us a rundown of what the deadlines are that relate to PCORI fees being due and when 5500s typically are, have to be filed? Yeah, so summertime and the living's easy is the, uh, is the famous song. Uh, both <laughs> the PCORI fee and calendar year 5500s are due on the same day, July 31st. PCORI fees are due on the July 31st of the year following the last day of the plan year. So what that means is if your plan year ended at any time in 2022, you file on July 31st. It's not a different date if your plan ended on a particular date. If it started plan year instead of calendar year, you're going to file the July 31st after the year in which your plan year ends for PCORI. So everybody files PCORI July 31st. The difference is just what the fee is based upon when their plan year ended. If you have short plan years for PCORI, uh, you pay twice, but you pay twice two times on July 31st, not on different dates. Your Form 5500, if you are not subject to that exception, so if you have 100 or more employees on the first day of the plan year and you're, uh, or you're a funded plan, you have to file by the end of the seventh month after the plan year ends, which for a calendar year plan would be July 31st. And a two and a half month extension is readily available. So if you're not ready on July 31st to hit submit and e-file it, you can send in what's called a form 5558. It is the easiest government form I've ever seen. It doesn't even require a signature. <laughs> you, you put the plan name on there and a couple of quick facts and you just drop it in the mail. And as long as it's postmarked by the date the filing is due, then the extension is automatically granted. It's the easiest government process I ever worked with. Uh, so those dates would be July 31st for calendar year plans, October 15th if you get an extension under the 5558. PCORI, there's no extension, but you would pay that uh, penalty that I mentioned earlier, 5% capped at 25%, but a minimum of $100 if it's more than 60 days late. You read my mind. I was going to say, confirm there's no extension for the PCORI fees. So 
Thank you for that. And you were just talking about penalties, and I know you went over them, as you just said, for Procori fees, but what about for Form 5500s? They're a lot heftier, so what should employers know about that? Yes, so Form 5500 is the sunshine form. It is designed for plan participants to see if they are being taken advantage of in their benefit plans and in their pensions. So the penalties for a Form 5500 failure are severe, and they're meant to be severe. They're meant to be a deterrent for uh, non-compliance. They want people to comply. So the penalties for a 5500 can be up to $2,400 to $2,586 per day that the filing is late with no maximum. There's no statute of limitations. It goes back as far as the compliance failure is, and it keeps adding up. So if an employer gets an audit letter uh, from the IRS, and I've seen them, uh, I've seen them a few times on 401k plans. I've not seen them on uh, health and welfare plans myself, uh, but it's a massive penalty on purpose. With that, there's a easy way to come clean. So the Department of Labor, the goal here is compliance. It's not revenue generation. The goal is to get employers to show this information so that participants know that their plans are acting in a fiduciary capacity. And so they offer this program called the Delinquent Filer Voluntary Compliance Program that takes your penalty from up almost $2,600 per day to $10 per day with a maximum of $2,000 per plan year and $4,000 per plan. So you go from a penalty that would put an employer out of business, and it's designed to be a put an employer out of business kind of penalty, down to really what is a headache for most employers. It's that it, nobody wants to pay $4,000, uh, but nobody wants to pay $2,500 a day. So you come clean, you pay the, the $4,000, you get right, and you file your, your past forms. And as long as you file that before you get audited, you won't be subject to that huge of almost $2,600 a day penalty. And getting into the delinquent um, file or voluntary program, that isn't difficult to do. It's not like you have to wait for approval. So when you are selecting that that's what you're doing, that you're just filing your past uh, forms and making sure that you're coming up to current uh, for your plan year, and then you're going to pay the fee, and then that's it. You're You're done. There's no other uh worries that you have um to that correct chris absolutely you check a couple of boxes there's a, a box on the front of the 5500 that says mm -hmm. dfvcp and then there's a uh, payment that's due through pay.gov that you pay the same time and you can use a credit card for that and i've done several of these for groups over mm -hmm. the years and i have never seen one have any negative consequences as a result of doing it so i know i've talked to people who are afraid that this will raise red flags and hey should i should I avoid doing this because I don't want the government right. to know that we didn't do it? Um, again, we're, we aren't giving legal advice, but as a regular person, I would say, no, you don't want to not be compliant in case you might get in more trouble by doing the right thing. You usually don't get in more trouble by doing the right things. Yeah, that's been my experience as well. I mean, the, the sooner that you take corrective action, uh, the better that it always is in the event that um, there's some audit that comes down the line. That's been our experience here as well. So the last uh, question that I really have for you, because uh, we've talked about a lot of information today, a lot of numbers. We did a little bit of math for everybody. We talked about deadlines, group size, plan type. But what do you have as some tips or best practices for businesses just to ensure compliance with the requirements that we were talking about today and really to avoid penalty? Yeah, so it's going to be the same rules that apply everywhere to all the various obligations that plan sponsors and benefits advisors have, which is keep good records, understand the requirements, 
and work with a knowledgeable benefits advisor or a compliance expert. It's so critical to stay up to date with all the changes in the law because the requirements change so frequently. And that's where the team at Savoy can come in to help. And anyone that's listened to uh, anything from Savoy before, you've heard all of us here on the compliance team say, document, document, document. And that is uh, probably the rule of thumb here with anything that's compliance, is just have good record keeping. And if your good record keeping is that you're taking notes somewhere, um, you're certainly being able to do that through the use of technology, but that's probably your uh, best friend when it comes to anything compliance is just document why you did the way you did something, what was the reasoning behind it, and the data that you used. Uh, keep that handy in the event that you ever have to recall that in the future for some uh, particular reason. Would you agree? If you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. <laughs> that's true. At least if you're trying to prove you did something right. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is true. All right, that's going to wrap things up for Chris and I today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And this is just a reminder that a lot of the information that Chris was going over can be found on our website in our knowledge base. So definitely be sure to search that. It does have all of the updated PCORI fees amounts as well as the due dates. And everything that you ever wanted to know about Form 5500s can be found there as well. So be sure to utilize those resources. And until next time, Chris, thanks again for all the information. I greatly appreciate your time. Thank you.